Welcome to Unwinding, a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we sit down with KU researchers in a favorite or familiar setting to chat about what they're working on, why they're passionate about it, why it matters, and what makes them tick as humans. Wherever the location, the conversation explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries. Unwinding is a collaboration between the Commons at the University of Kansas and KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. It's hosted by Emily Ryan, the Director of the Commons, and produced by Mark Sheaves, Assistant Director of Communications for the College, who sometimes asks questions. Um, so this is Emily here. Um, today we're sitting down with Ward Lyles to have a conversation, which I'm very excited about. Frankly, every time I talk to you, I always feel inspired and better afterwards. So thanks. Feelings mutual. <laughs> thanks for making time. So I wanted to kind of just launch right into the central topic within your research, I think, compassion. Could you talk to us a bit about how that informs what you're teaching, but also what you're researching, and then other topics that come out of that? So I am a professor, an assistant professor in the School of Public Affairs and Administration and uh, in the program for urban planning. And for folks that aren't familiar with urban planning, it's sometimes thought about architecture, engineering, up a scale from the building to the neighborhood. But then I often think about it as being more akin to, say, social work and humans and communities. And our field's boundaries are very porous. And so for me, that's a lot of fun because I have been able to reflect as I'm in the classroom, uh, hopefully getting students excited about planning and cities and suburbs and where we live and making this argument that if we take better care of the places we live, that we'll be able to do a better job of solving a whole bunch of the problems we face, able to think about what is it that we're really trying to do, and I think that's trying to build more compassionate communities and places where we can help people flourish rather than suffer. And another aspect of that within your work is networks and the idea of building networks. And I'm sorry to ask you that without a visual opportunity because every time we talk about this, it's helpful to sort of see you draw it out. But what are some layers on which you're working with networks? Well, maybe I'll talk about what's happening in the classroom first. I do a lot of my teaching, essentially all my teaching that's in person in a team-based format. And so students are transparently put in teams and they work in these teams all semester. And I, uh, a colleague of mine in British Columbia turned me on to this as a, as a teaching a way to teach because he was teaching and I was teaching a course that's heavy on stats. And stats anxiety is a real thing. Mm. Um, lots of students come in, very few people are in our program because they want to be statisticians, right? They would be in the stat- statistics program. But to embed them in a team and in a network, they can support each other. And there's lots of different ways to think about networks. There's ways to think about networks that are very hierarchical, and I think that's one way that you could think about in a perhaps a military or a police kind of modality where there's somebody that's the general and then the colonel and then the major and down through the systems that way and there's there's sometimes that having a network that's very hierarchical and command and control can work really really well and then there are other times where it's good to have more of an organic kind of up from the bottom it's less clear who's in charge and there's lots of different ways that those networks can be organized and so I think about networks and how people interact both in the classroom and in my research, I find this a very powerful way to sort of think about how do we approach solving problems because we're individuals, but we're also individuals, every single one of us embedded in these broader networks that can either enable us to learn more or can constrain us in our learning. And and especially for, I think it's in the 21st century, you're going to find very few people who get to go do their own work and close the door. Mm. Even in this digital era, it's actually in many ways bringing us closer together Mm -hmm. um, or at least wanting to be closer together. So. Mm. 
Yeah, and so the idea of collaboration being the way forward. I know that you, through your work with the Center for Teaching Excellence, were part of the Diversity Scholars Program, is that right? Correct. And I had read that you won an award, in fact, from the Association of Collegiate Schools and the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy for a course that you had designed in compassionate planning. Strangely enough, it's that same kind of statistics class that I started with over time, realizing that students learned much better through active learning, working together in teams that simulate what they'll do once they leave school, Mm -hmm. building and things that I learned uh, from the Diversity Scholars Program and and other um, kind of reading and trainings through CT and elsewhere is that essentially we are, there's there's arguments building that we are fundamentally wired in our brains to be social beings, Mm -hmm. that our default state is actually in relationship, not individual, and that's really not our dominant mode of education and higher education in the U.S. But if we're going to do that, we have to recognize that our diverse experiences shape how we enter the classroom every day. And so that diverse, when we hear diversity, if you do like a Google image search, just type in the word Mm -hmm. diversity, it comes up kind of color and it's a lot about skin hue but and and that's a very important way but there's lots of different forms of diversity and i think about and talk about with students diversity in the experience from a very banal basic thing of somebody walks into the classroom a little annoyed or irritated because they missed their bus by two minutes and they're feeling harried because they're late that shapes how they come into the classroom i also have students that that I'm aware of that are going through large life traumas, Mm -hmm. largely out of their control to their loved ones or themselves and other things, and that shapes their ability to learn. Um, When we embed students in networks of care and support that they develop through these team-based practices, um, it's really pretty powerful to watch. And it's a collaborative, you mentioned collaboration earlier, it's actually a collaborative process. We have two classes, the the stats quantitative methods classes followed immediately after by history and theory, neither of which are the courses that people came to grad school to take. But for the first two sessions in the first week of classes, uh, my colleague Bonnie Johnson, who's also done lots of stuff with CTE, we take a three-hour block and split it into, I do an hour about how my class is going to work. We co-teach a middle piece, and then we do, she does an hour on her class. But in that process, we do, we spend the first day having students talk about what their undergrad experience was like. This is all master's students. And so just by talking about what your experience was like in the classroom helps them understand how different the experiences are and just how they approach learning. And then between the first and the second class period, the students do some of those sort of, uh, sometimes they're cheesy and uninformative, and sometimes they're actually useful online uh, kind of personality test or things along those lines and uh, as well as the social identities thinking about their own identities and then we we open space for students in their teams to be able to to share they don't have to but to share about different parts of their own identity what are they most aware of when Mm. they come to campus what are they uh, least aware of and how does that shape again so there's lots of different factors that shape how we come into the classroom and then this is hopefully helping them to broaden their brains and think about how when they go out in our field is very community-oriented, the different perspectives um, that they're going to deal with. And a huge part of that is just getting in touch first with your own kind of self-awareness and being aware of your own thoughts Mm -hmm. and emotions and positions and trying to open that space for self-exploration. That's interesting. I'm thinking about how we often talk about the university as a microcosm of a city in itself. And it's making me think that in the classroom, that exercise is sort of not only, like there are multiple layers to this. We're examining our own identity so that, as a student then, so that we can then apply this whole way of thinking going out into the world and developing ideas for community building and urban planning and that kind of thing. Is that 
Am I on the right track with it? Yes, and I mean, what part of what your comments making me reflect on, and, and again, part of the reason I came to compassion and thinking about what we what we do as a field is there's a long tradition in Western scientific thought as well in philosophical thought, and certainly in the 20th century about how important rational thought is, and rational thought is really important, but we spend a lot less time using our higher functioning primate brain than we'd like to believe. Mm. Um, it's mixed in with our emotions and our fear, flight, and fight response. These things get triggered all the time. And for public, when we engage with diversity um, and talk about hard issues, people's palms start to sweat and their heartbeat increases. And and again, what we did not do very well as a field of planning, and I think it's true for architecture and engineering and plenty of other fields that have brought the scientific management approach to cities, there's a lot that's great about that for infrastructure and other things. But one, we lost touch with the wisdom in nature. Um, we lost touch not systematic, well, systematically, not totally, but we lost a lot of wisdom from what we traditionally have thought as more feminine ways of knowledge and connections, again, to social work and the legacies of people like Jane Addams. And this sense of, again, it's it's not exclusively female, but associated with care and compassion and emotions and feelings. We've treated all that as if it's poison to our thinking and our decision-making process. But there's tremendous wisdom there. And that is part of the compassion. And I'd actually argue that a lot of the failures that we've seen in um, Jane Jacobs, uh, an urban critic in the 50s and 60s, is, is uh, known from renouncing planning as uh, not essentially the creation of cities, but the sacking of cities. Um, and a lot of the problems that we see manifest in the U.S. And then if we wanted to talk about climate change and inequality, and these things are about dehumanizing other people. And this line of compassion is really about bringing the humanity back and allowing people to be more of their full selves, mm. but also being cognizant that their full self is probably pretty different than the full self of the person near them, and they need to be thoughtful about what assumptions they have. And I've, I've done my own learning on this as a uh, essentially a highly educated white male, even just moving into certain spaces that can change the dynamic, especially if I have a title of professor and mm -hmm. the power and these kind of things that can be embedded in that and helping people to, to hopefully bring in more humility and awareness, especially when we move into realms like equity and, and justice and diversity. That's making me think there are a couple points at which I could go from there, I suppose, but it's making me think about a, a little bit about what I know from your experience this summer. So you were you earned an NSF Career Award to be exploring resilience and planning in the face of climate change and natural disaster issues. But with this experiential kind of component that you're mentioning right now as sort of a core component to it, and, the, and then the summer you attended a training session, would you want to tell us just a bit more about that and then we can get more into the grant itself too? Sure, and, and if I can, I'll just do a quick yeah. flip because the, the context for the grant and the research so the National Science Foundation has a, a program that has existed for decades that it's in, in, the, in the engineering world, but it is it has long recognized the value of social sciences. And as a planner, that's sort of the way I approach problems and, and questions. And this hazards program then I applied and applied a few times and was awarded this career award. And the career award is pretty cool because it's an investment, one for five years, so it gives a little more time. And it's less of a grant to go do spe specified activities, but to set somebody up to then be able to have a, mm. a trajectory of impact. 
And one thing it's just causing in my brain and is to think about also acknowledging how that came about because it's a risk to go into an engineering directorate and talk about compassion. Networks, engineers get networks mm-hmm. deeply. Um, and it's not just engineers that reviewed it, but this compassion piece. And I mean, I was drawing, I didn't put it in my proposal, but there's lots of deep Buddhist thought in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, more comfortable with hearing about neuroscientists putting people in MRIs than we are about ancient philosophical or religious wisdom, but this piece of knowing the right answer again with our rational brain is not enough and we need to bring this compassionate dimension in and that can be true whether we're talking about dealing with issues like racism or trying to reduce risk from the next Harvey or Maria or Matthew or Florence in my world of studying natural disasters. A lot of times we know the right answer, so to speak. That is, don't put things we care about in places we know are bound to flood or have hurricanes, which is not that it's not super complicated to figure that out. There's subtleties there, but generally speaking, we know where those places are. And so this work, this grant allows me to bring some of this network thinking to understand what's happening at the local level where most of the innovation needs to happen right now in our broader international and national context. And frankly, where a lot of the work has to be done after a disaster, before and after a disaster, just needs to be done at the local level. Bringing together the teaching pieces, like I was talking about earlier, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, compassion, but also quantitative, rigorous thinking. How can we bring these things together? But the career world also has a really cool component. It allows me to, to try to look at the interface of education research with community engagement. Mm. Um, so that wasn't short. That was longer. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the really amazing opportunities, we wrote in money into the grant for myself and, and a doctoral student who's working with me for five years to go and participate in a, essentially a year-long training with consultants who there's a team of folks the courage of care is this nonprofit organization and they're folks who have phds in religious studies and have spent lots of time in the contemplative community um, they're folks that are trauma-informed therapists there are people who have been uh, social justice and anti-racism activists for decades and there are about a half dozen folks that helped convene a five-day retreat, although retreat makes it sound uh, uh, like massages and, and uh, warm towels waiting for you and all this kind of stuff. There was tea and there were lovely, there were lovely things there for us, but, but the work was intense and hard. It was the most, this five-day experience, there were about six facilitators and about 15 to 20 participants. And that was really the right ratio in the sense of even the facilitators. The work was so hard. Yeah. Even essentially every single person self-selected into this program and at either financial cost or just time cost, effort cost, was participating in a, in a, in a process of unveiling and getting in touch with, um, we were talking a little before the podcast, just about how we're being bombarded with racist and sexist messages through all sorts of mediums every day. And every single one of those does a little bit of rewiring our brain, whether we want it to or not. How are we digesting all of that and being the kind of more compassionate people we want to be? And when you slow your body down and your brain down and you begin to feel tension and you begin to feel feelings of guilt or shame or anger and all sorts of different things, and in spite of every single person coming to this space with intention and commitment, there were still times where we just inadvertently were hurting each other Mm. without even intending to. But what was amazing was then picked up and held ourselves in a beloved community of care because um, intense not enough you need to think about impact but we're also all negotiating this space and it was an amazing it was the most physically emotionally intense non-family experience I've had in the last 20 years I would say it was really intense I woke up three days later like sweating 
in the middle of the night just like I mean it was it was it was but it was cathartic and and powerful but now we have a year-long course those 18 participants or 15 to 20 participants are in two different tracks and we meet every week through zoom calls and it's really a sense of care and community and we have a call this evening and we get together and talk about readings and practices and then we'll convene again at the end of the fall or in the end of the, the the spring semester over the summer and one of the things that's really powerful about it is we're taking this model and working with this consultant. It's not just for our own edification and growth, but we are literally, I was working with uh, this doctoral student who's working with me on this project. This morning, we're taking some of these pieces from this program mm-hmm. and putting it together with pieces from an online course I taught on hazards and climate change planning, wow. putting it together. And it's going to be a course offered this spring here at KU. And it, we're building a multi-stage course and we're building the courses so they can be cut into smaller pieces and delivered through the American Planning Association or KU's Public Management Center and so that they can get out to practice. And so it's really harnessing what we'd like to think is cutting edge research, cutting edge teaching and bringing in these pieces that are often taboo in our academic world about emotions and feelings and mm-hmm. mindfulness and, and some of these things. So did you say public management center? Mm-hmm. What, is, what does that do? I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed, I guess, that I don't know more about it. Um, I've been learning about it. It's, in the sc- it's now in the School of Public Affairs and Administration or affiliated. I'm not sure if it's in, but it's affiliated. But it's a group that has, does all manner of different trainings around the state for different things like next week i'll be going and talking about some of this compassion stuff in a in a workshop setting with a group of folks in johnson county that are in emerging leaders academy a lot of non uh, local government folks as well as some epa folks and then there's another academy cohort over in topeka and that one tends to be a little more state employees but they do all sorts of online in-person training consulting it's a, a resource here at ku and that it's intellectually and physically close to the work of public administration and planning that's wonderful. And so actually we're looping in. We have verbal commitments from folks from the PMC when we teach this course in the spring, recognizing that uh, the two of us who would be facilitating this course, my doctoral student and I, or the doctoral student I'm working with and I, we need more diversity in our facilitation team. Mm-hmm. And so diversity in skill sets and in life experiences. And so from the Public Management Center and hopefully um, Professor of Practice or, or more from uh, the School of Social Welfare over in Kansas City, or the Edwards campus, coming together to co-facilitate this course. And this is the kind of thing that it won't pencil out on paper the first time, but that's where the beauty of this grant, the Career Award, allows us to make it financially fit mm. without worrying about butts and seats. I'm curious about your own personal trajectory a little bit here. So you did a PhD, presumably in uh, urban planning, and then at what point did this sort of compassion piece come into your work? Was there a moment? Or was it a <laughs> An awakening. Yeah. <laughs> there was not a specific apocryphal or epiphany kind of moment. Um, it's interesting. I, I uh, almost went to divinity school. Um, I was really interested in sort of environment and ethics out of undergrad. I delivered pizzas for a year and was all ready and committed to a go to one of the very few places that have divinity schools and environmental studies type schools. Mm and was going to go do that and uh, then decided that wasn't the right path in in part because I was not, well, a lot of people that go to divinity school don't actually end up in any way being a practitioner of of kind of religious teaching or whatnot. But um, it wasn't the right choice for me at that time, but it's never gone away, that interest in the the shoulds and the oughts and the whys. Mm. And I don't know when I first bought my 
first book by, say, the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, I know it at least was in college, and I, I actually took a phenomenal course in college. I aspire to be able to teach, like, a professor that we had there who had a course. Um, the first one was Faith, Freedom, and Ecology. So this was a, a college-level course, and it was about f- different forms of faith, about principles of democracy, and then also about environmentalism. And took that course, and it was amazing. It's the kind of course where at the end of the semester, the professor gets a standing ovation. It's really phenomenal. It's like a, and it's, but it's not like a Broadway show. It's like real and authentic. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I took another course with that professor on, I can't remember the title, but it was about faith, art, and ecology. And they had a curated exhibit at the art museum, and the whole class was built around that. We had this four-week January term kind of class. So, I mean, my interest goes back at least that far. And I remember in my doctoral studies toward the end of that, when I felt fairly sure that was going to be done, I started downloading a paper here and there about... Buddhism and psychology Mm. and different pieces and wanting to think about uh, some of this planning and emotions and stuff. Came in on the teaching side again when I was in my first spring teaching here to a course to undergraduates and sort of an introduction to planning and sustainability and these things. And one of the big things, critiques of sustainability is people talk a ton about environment and economics. How do we have green, Mm -hmm. save green by being green? Mm -hmm. And we forget that really probably the most important long-term principle is equity. Mm equity at this moment in time and then equity across generations and like again why do we plan and it's it's i i believe and i've been steeped in deep ecology and other sort of thing modes of thinking about the whole world as meriting value but there's a humanist part to to planning and why i'm there and it's an easier way to connect with people is that human relation and so that questioning came through in that class, and I started, I read a book called Slow Violence by Rob Nixon, who... Mm-hmm. He spoke here, yeah. He spoke here in the Commons, right? Yep. And it was, bef- it was before in Spooner Hall, where we're sitting right now? Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's before I got to campus, I missed out on that, uh, yeah. but uh, read that book and got really interested, like, what's the opposite of violence? And mm-hmm. it's not just nonviolence, but compassion, it asks more than just nonviolence, and it's not to denigrate nonviolence as a movement, but mm-hmm. just all these different ways it was, it was culminating, and then really what happened is mentors within... The university and mentors outside the university, particularly my colleague Stacy White, basically said, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to in the academic publishing parish head toward tenure. You're doing what you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Allow yourself to take a breath and take a risk. And that's where I took a risk and put some of this compassion stuff down on paper and sent it to the engineering directorate and got kicked back and essentially the the red ink version uh, we're not buying what you're selling kind of thing but then um, got more encouragement to go back after it in the Institute for Policy and Social Research here mm-hmm. there's amazing people there Stephen Maynard Moody is, is the director but really Nancy Kate Myers is one of the pre-award specialists helped with grants and, mm-hmm. and she just believed in what I was doing and Stacy White believed in what I was doing they really said I think there's something here and just kept trying to tighten it up and I also did things to build a case that this proposal would work. Yeah. I went and took a workshop up in Madison, Wisconsin, and that's where I met Brooke Lavelle, who is the head of Courage of Care, who's now partner in compassion as opposed to partner in crime um, mm-hmm. on this work. And so I just kind of kept at it in the pieces and there was serendipity and, yeah. um, and also seeing it resonate with people. I am far from the only one at this moment in time you can look across. Emily just connected me this morning via email with somebody and a couple of different people are doing work. And there is such a need at this moment in time when mm-hmm. fear is such a dominating narrative and tool that is being used 
to divide us and them. We, the, the, the specter of climate change and poverty and injustice and nuclear war and other things, they're still big enough and scary enough out there that fear causes us to retrench and go to self-interest instead of be communitarian and yeah against our human nature right and frankly against our human nature i mean (laughs) there's a fascinating book for for readers who want to if you're not buying any of the things i'm talking about here go read the book on killing it's by a psychologist or psychiatrist in the military who basically walks through and shows how the military actually spent much of the 20th century using psychology and tools of psychology to dehumanize the other to create more cohesion within platoons rather than moving soldiers Mm. around over time to basically make it so people would do things that every impulse is telling them not to do and the, the, the on-target rates of shooting and things went up dramatically. And so this is the reverse, that mm-hmm. they're, it's, that's, I guess, their job, but that, that there's certainly the opportunities and people have been talking about this for millennia and some people have been practicing it and there's a mm-hmm. lot of wisdom out there we can draw from. I wanted to just also mention the book you mentioned earlier, Rob Nixon, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. I know that that book has resonated across a number of departments here and played a role in a conference that we hosted Mm -hmm. years ago, too. But yeah, that certainly has has been resonant for a while. And I think it also, in what you're talking about right now, sort of addresses this larger issue, which is that you as a researcher and a colleague are constantly asking the question of why and like why it matters, why we're doing it and that kind of thing. And I think that that's part of what makes the work you're doing so meaningful and relevant across areas. And a couple of years ago, you and some colleagues here, Uma Alka and Rachel Kraus, actually had a seed grant from the Commons and started a, a conversation to ask us questions about the low-carbon transition and what role social justice played in that as well, right? And I think those are relationships, too, that have continued on. Those relationships, I mean, they're part of the reason the urban planning program at the time actually wasn't in the School of Public Affairs, and those are relationships that help strengthen connections there. It's a small little world because Uma does amazing work that's in the in the realm of law, and she worked at an environmental nonprofit, uh, had the same name, 1,000 Friends of Wisconsin, that I had worked at a nonprofit in Wisconsin called 1,000 Friends of Wisconsin. They're not formally tied together, but it is a <laughs> network, and we very well may have been in space together uh-huh. in, in back in the past, and these things kind of converging, and Rachel Krauss and I, before we were either of us at KU, had both been uh, on papers that were published in a journal mm-hmm. um, that dealt with sustainability and environment and policy issues. And then we had this amazing experience going through working with the Commons, hosting this symposium here. And we really, with and with with uh, your participation and help, thought about ways really strategically to bring in local stakeholders mm-hmm. as well as to bring in national stakeholders. And so that it wasn't just academics talking to it, academics. And I mean, this is one of the beauties of being in planning right. is while I do have to meet some of those uh, more academic-y ivory tower expectations that are out there. I mean, we have to write for particular audiences sometimes. But as a, our field is fundamentally practice-oriented. I'm a, a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners. I am a certified planner. The university decides to get rid of me, I can go do <laughs> that. We, and so we have to play across those bounds, and that's who I'm educating. Mm. And so the workshop, we had folks here from uh, doing climate justice work for the NAACP wow. and kind of grassroots uh, Green for All movement out west on the way to the East Coast, West Coast on some of that and bringing in diversity issues. And it was a fabulous experience. It was, in many ways, it's one of the pieces that also fed into me being able to do this work is the connections, the network piece, and building the network, 
grappling with these ideas. That was one of the places where I rolled out some of this uh, compassion idea, and some people were like, I don't know. And so I honed a bit. That's the, uh, the yeah. academic experience, and also the outside of, outside of the, the academy is just this trial and error, very pragmatic moving through the world. Um, I mean, it's beautiful to be able to retreat to our offices sometimes and think without the pollutants of real, mm -hmm. but then also it's also really nice to be able to engage. I mean, we did along these same lines. I think you know that I love all forms of transportation that are <laughs> human-powered and also uh, non-polluting. And the walking project we did mm -hmm. a couple Walk of years Your City? Right? Walk Your City, yeah. yeah. And was this something you had been involved in in North Carolina and then we sort of launched into an effort here as well? I, I was aware of it, but I wasn't involved in okay. it. So I did my uh, doctorate studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And there, the planning unit is at the University of North Carolina, and the design folks are over at North Carolina State, and they're about 40 minutes apart, and mm -hmm. you can take classes. And there was a student who, planning slash designer, so had the good spatial sense and also had like a good design eye, and basically created these little signs. They got really frustrated that in Raleigh, North Carolina, the capital city in North Carolina, there were all these signs like telling people how to find all the different parking lots to get to the state capitol or this museum or right. this thing. When you could see it. In and place. you could essentially <laughs> see it, yeah. And you could walk over to it and like people are driving from like one side of the capitol square to the other. And <laughs> right. like this is, this, is, this is absurd. And so made these signs and then did what is called kind of guerrilla urbanism mm. and just designed them made them, printed them up, and stuck them all over the city, got a bunch of attention. The city powers that be, the, they're really good reasons to have lots of rules and regulations to help yeah. us manage how we collide into people in space. <laughs> but sometimes those rules become self-serving, and this was a case where it went outside the rule framework in a non-harmful way, and then the city realized there was enough reception, positive reception, that that became part of the city. And other cities had done it, and you and I talked a little bit based mm -hmm. on personality and our jobs and different things. We, we decided not to be guerrilla urbanist about <laughs> it, but we, so we went through the campus, urban campus. Uh, the planning, yeah, uh, facilities and planning. Yeah. And I think we also went to the city. I and we went having, through the city. Yeah, downtown. We, we got city council approval yeah. to put these signs up, and we put them around. And So they said things like, it's five-minute walk to the farmer's market with an arrow pointing. Uh, Very basic signs, yeah. but to increase pedestrian or bicycle traffic. So, slower moving. And there's <laughs> a little QR code for people that use their phones right. and, and devices that way. And um, cool. yeah. it was really cool. I mean, it's yeah. it's um, one of those things that there there are other initiatives going on in the city right now that. Like, uh, we have children who uh, are at two different schools here, one in elementary and one in middle school, that they can they can and do walk or bike mm -hmm. or scoot to. And uh, the Douglas County Community Foundation has provided a $10,000 grant to Pinckney Elementary School. Some of the funds went to the plan, a, pl a planning class, in essence, the planning department mm -hmm. here, to do a bunch of analysis on Safe Routes to School that built on kind of city-wide efforts led by the health department. Thinking about things that we can do at the school level, the city's engaged in Safe Route to School, and and our city has a long way to go. It's one of the, the, the good bads for some of these more planning issues. Lawrence is, is often ahead of many other cities in Kansas, but then it's like, who do you compare yourself to mm -hmm. in some of these issues? Walkable, bikeable kinds of the things. So this grant for the school is a way that you or the professor can also help lend some expertise to like having students involved then in the process of actually implementing that kind of thing. 
Yes. I mean, last Monday night, there was a group of us that were at the elementary school in the evening and going through, looking at the neighborhood. Where are the, where right. are the, where are the conflict points? What things can we change in our own power? Which things do require more of uh, engineering changes that are more costly? But like lots of things, I mean, for anybody who has concerns about a neighborhood school, a lot of the conflict points are with the people bringing their kids to school. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's between 745 and 815. And, yeah, it's exactly. like we are our own problem. Mm-hmm. And that is, all. I mean, for lots of problems out there in the world, it's easier to see the problem in someone else and rather than to recognize how our own behaviors contribute to it. Mm-hmm. And so there's an education piece, but then there's design pieces. How do we change the entryway into the school so it reduces conflict points so you don't have somebody dropping their kid and kids running in front of a car? Right. Or how do we get kids excited and motivated? Because a lot of kids want to walk. So we've talked about something along the lines of a walk the last hundred can we move drop-off points cool. yeah. 50 to 100 yards away from the school and there's cool art connections too because the pinckney school goes the school's mm, on a state highway and there's a tunnel that goes under the highway that's got all sorts of amazing art and when it gets tagged with graffiti the school's on it and and go fund me and get it all cleaned up and fixed up immediately so it's this fun interplay of like the humans the design elements, the engineering elements, and then going through with the long city procedures. I mean, it's it's a microcosm of the work. And again, one of the big selling points, so to speak, for I encounter a lot of students that are environmental studies students, uh, American studies students, architecture, different students that are have been exposed through the first two or three years of their college experience or just graduated college and been working out there. And the gravity, scope, depth of the problems we face are so big as to almost lead to a sense of lack of agency and empowerment, despair, and just what is going on, regardless of your political affiliation or your own racial, ethnic background. It can just feel so big. And one of the fun things about our field is Again, you can innovate and do things at the local level, and those things then can often catch fire and build momentum up to national or international levels. And that's where the faith is on this compassion stuff. It's about human-to-human connection um, because the psychology and other research is pretty clear that if we wait around for everybody in the global north that has put most of the carbon in the atmosphere to recognize that our former student, our graduate, um, who lives in East Timor, one of the newest countries in the world and one of the vulnerable 20 countries in the world, if we wait till everybody here recognizes that he and the people he loves and cares about and lives with are people too that matter, it, the game's over, mm. right? We, that's, it's just, that's out of our bounds for psychology as you get farther in social distance and physical distance and time distance. We're just not built, we're not wired that way. We're wired to think about 25 to 150 mm. people we care deeply about. But if we can incrementally push that out and also diversify that and, and create these sense of connection and empower people at the local level, not a panacea, but at least it's pushing us in the right direction. And again, a lot of students hit planning or public wealth, public administration, social work, some of these fields and realize, oh wait, I can get paid a decent wage and go home and go to bed and feel good about myself. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, an exciting place to be. I feel really privileged to be able to, to be a professor and work on these issues. Just to wrap that up, I suppose I was thinking the idea of the network actually is what sort of can create the sense of overwhelm too in terms of the world being so big and, you know, social media and various things like that because everything's at our fingertips. But on the flip side, everything's at our fingertips, right? And like, as you're saying, by creating more points and being more aware of the connections in the network, that can be a useful tool as well. And I, I think that there's an opportunity for us to, I would say that one of the 
biggest problems right now is in these professional fields, and I think this is a problem in academia, generally speaking, is, again, we don't pay attention to how we are all different when we walk into, say, the classroom, and how we're all similar. And most professors get no training in pedagogy. Sorry to let that out of the bag, but most, <laughs> most doctoral pro programs don't educate in pedagogy, and they do even less to educate people on how to build a trusting and caring classroom mm. climate. But the evidence is is, is um, unequivocal that when you have, I mean, to be able to really engage with hard issues, you need trust and community and to be able to have students really deeply learn they need to be actively engaged and, and again that's about a network and creating it at a scale that is manageable and feels empowering and then those people then hopefully go out and they view themselves as network weavers as rather than cogs in a machine mm -hmm. it's a different way to look at the same like it's the same sort of analogy but it's it gives you more agency as opposed to feeling disempowered Another example of classroom as microcosm of the world. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's really, it's really pretty cool in that regard. Cool. Well, thank you so much for yeah, chatting with you. us. This was a great, great conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Unwinding is a collaboration between the Commons at KU and KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. The Commons is a catalyst for unconventional thinking, interdisciplinary inquiry, and unexpected discoveries across the sciences, arts, and humanities. The College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is the heart of KU. It's home to more than 50 departments, programs, and centers, offering more than 100 majors, minors, and certificates. A collaborative and creative community, the college is committed to making the world better through inquiry and research. <laughs>